Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. We are getting started in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. Before we get started, let's give a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for gathering us together to study your word, for your word is truth. We pray you would bless this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 8. This is an interesting chapter. Well, actually, the story of me studying this is an interesting chapter, as it is an interesting story. I, uh, when I got to this chapter, I read it the first time, and I thought, oh, okay, well, this, this is kind of boring. All right? This is about just Noah and his family getting off the ark. There's lots of times given, a couple birds fly out. And I thought, oh, that's kind of straightforward and boring, really. It's just the details of how they got off the ark. And then the more I started, the more I studied it, and the more I, I looked into some of the commentaries and, and some of the things going on with the languages, the more and more fascinating and the more interesting it became. Uh, this is, not surprisingly, uh, this chapter is deeply sacramental. Uh, and it's not surprising because the Bible is deeply sacramental. Christianity is a deeply sacramental religion. And when I say sacramental, I mean things having to do with the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, things having to do with baptism, things having to do with oil and anointing oil and all that, all the physical stuff about Christianity that we spoke about in the sermon this morning. A lot of that stuff appears in Genesis chapter 8. So we are going to examine that and see what we can see. Beginning, well, actually, let me back us up just a little bit so that we can all get on the same page. This story really began in Genesis chapter 6, where we see the sons of God interrelate. They cohabitate with the daughters of men. And the product of that unholy union are these Nephilim creatures that are born to them. They're described as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. They're described as being so evil that they cause the rest of the world to plummet into evil. Such evil that God has to start over. He, has, he sends a flood to destroy the world. The world and the animals and everything. He's going to wash the earth and start over with Noah and his family. The sons of God, uh, we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. The sons of God are basically... Fallen angelic spirits that cohabitate with humans, the, the daughters of men. And uh, the, the product of this are these giant creatures, these Nephilim creatures that are so evil that they cause the world to, to, to plummet. God has to start over. God says man's, uh, man's mind is on, is, is on evil continually. I got to press reset on this. This is too bad. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. In the New Testament, 1 Peter relates this, 1 Peter chapter 3 relates the whole Noah story to baptism. It talks about baptism now saved. So we, we talked about that a little bit last week. So I won't revisit that. But because Peter 
picks up on the Noah narrative and sees it as deeply sacramental, having to do with the, the subject of baptism, we ought to see that as well. And, and as we get into Genesis 8 now, we're going to see a lot of those baptism images come through. Last week, we saw how Noah and his family, eight souls and all, went onto the ark. God closed the door behind them and it started raining. Not only did it rain from above, but the waters gushed out from below as well. So over 40 days, God covers the earth in this flood. Everyone dies, the scripture says. Everyone dies. So let's start in Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Let's pause. Now, let me ask you. God remembers. Does God forget? Is God an old man that he needs to write things down or else he'll forget? No, this is sort of metaphorical language, but it actually is deeply sacramental language as well. God remembers Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were with him in the ark. So God sends a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subside. Now the word for wind here is the word ruach. In the Greek translation, the Septuagint, it is the Greek word pneuma. Both of those words can mean spirit as well. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you see that the spirit is hovering over the waters of creation, those are the words that are used for spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Ruach in the Hebrew, pneuma in the Greek. Uh, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which is all, all written in Greek, is oftentimes referred to as pneuma, the spirit. It's, it's where we get our, our words pneumatic. What's happening here, <laughs> we see that God sends a spirit over the waters and the waters subside. What did we see in Genesis chapter 1 with the spirit? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. And then what happens next? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So when the Spirit and the water come together, creation is born. That's what's happening here. This is intentional. The Spirit and the water are coming together, and new creation is born. There's going to be new creation that comes from this water. Also, we know that this isn't just a regular wind because if it's a worldwide flood, wind blowing over a worldwide flood isn't going to move any water around enough to bring the, the, the waters down, right? This is a supernatural intervention of God to actually bring these waters down. Now, this is the Holy Spirit of God working to bring these waters down. So we already see that there's something creation-wise. There's sort of this Genesis 1, this, this, this creative language happening. Now, let's actually back up to the third word. <laughs> In my translation, which is the ESV is what I'm using, I have, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock, etc. This word remember is also very important. Again, in the, in the Hebrew, it's the word zikar, or in this particular instance, it's vitzakor. In the Greek, it is uh, the word for anamnesis, or a form of it, which is anamneste. 
So the Greek and the Hebrew words aren't really important. I don't want you to get lost in the nuances of the language. But what I do want you to see is this, this word that's translated into English as remember has a thread that goes through the whole Bible and lands in the New Testament. We see this word used again in the uh, just a, a chapter over where God gives the rainbow as a sign of his covenant. And he says, when I look down and I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant with you and I will not flood the earth again. So who's remembering in that circumstance? God is the one doing the remembering. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, we see this happening again. Let me pull that up real quick. I know everyone studied deeply the book of Numbers, right? No, I'm just kidding. But most people, if they, they're like, we're going to read the whole Bible, they get... Through Genesis, Exodus, they kind of make it into Leviticus and, and they die somewhere out around Leviticus chapter 6. You know, so Numbers chapter 10, verse uh, 9 and 10. Hear this word remembering. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. Verse 10, on the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder, remembrance, they shall be a reminder of you before God. I am the Lord your God. So again, let me ask you, who's doing the remembering in these instances? God, yes. So the trumpets given to the Israelites to blow isn't so that the people will go, oh, it's time for the it's time for the feast or, oh, it's time to go to war. Rather, it's so that God will remember them and God will go with them. We even see that the, uh, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings are for a remembrance before God. In Genesis chapter 8, we see God looks down and God remembers Noah. And the, the covenant, which we'll, we'll, we'll look more at Genesis 9 next week and the ins and outs of how the rainbow is given and things. But we see that God looks down and he sees the rainbow and God remembers his covenant. And this is all those those words, this, those words anamnesis and the word zakar, you know, anamnesis in Greek, zakar in Hebrew. Those are the words or different forms of those words that are being used. Now, when we get to the New Testament, this thread of remembrance lands in the Lord's Supper, or the Holy Communion, or the Eucharist. How so? Luke twenty-two nineteen 19, or 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. 24, what do we oftentimes hear? Do this in remembrance of me. That's that Greek word anamnesis. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, that is not, that's an okay translation, but that could also be translated as, do this as my memorial. So what we see in the Holy Communion meal, when you say, do this in remembrance of me, well, we see a couple of things, actually. Let, let me not jump into it too much. First of all, let me say, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, that line is not there. That's only present in the Gospel of Luke. And in uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's rehearsing how you do the Holy Communion meal. It's not present in Matthew or Mark, and it's not the, the 
whole institution of the Lord's Supper isn't even in the Gospel of John. That tells us one thing. That tells us that the, the memorial part, or do this in remembrance of me, is not the most important part of that meal. Right? And the most important part of that meal is, this is my body, this is my blood. Talking about the bread and wine, respectively. That's, that's present in all the accounts, all four accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Second, we see that when we remember, or, or when we're doing this as a remembrance, that it's not so much us who are recalling something in our memory about God. Rather, it's God who is remembering us in that moment. The idea following these Old Testament, uh, these, these Old Testament chapters, the kids are running like crazy. The idea is that we want to be in God's remembrance. Why? Because when we are in God's remembrance, good things happen for us, right? When Noah is in God's remembrance, he brings him through the flood. The waters subside and he's allowed to come out of the ark and be fruitful and multiply. When God remembers the Israelites in Numbers chapter 10, when they blow the trumpets and when they have those, those offerings, then they go out to war and it says that they are saved in their war. God will save them from their enemies. We see the remembrance again in the, the covenant with Noah and the rainbow. God looks down and he sees the rainbow and he will remember his covenant. So in the Eucharist or the Holy Communion meal, we are doing that not so that we can fondly think about something God did for us 2,000 years ago by dying on a cross, though you're welcome to do that, but that's not the point. The point is we are doing that so God will look down on us in that moment and God will remember his people. That means we are saying that, Lord, the promises you made to us in Jesus Christ, right, the promises of, of life, salvation, renewal in the Spirit, uh, being united to Christ, being re, uh, renewed by the Holy Spirit, I already said that one, being reconciled back to the Father, all of these promises given to us in Jesus, we are claiming those promises right now. Remember us, Lord. Remember us right now. And the ritualized expression of that is through the Holy Communion meal, through bread and wine. That's why, if, if you notice, liturgically, when I'm, when I'm celebrating communion, I will lift up the bread and then I will lift up the wine. It's not because I believe that in that exact moment, the bread and wine is somehow being transubstantiated into something else. Now, I do believe in the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine, but that's not why I'm lifting it up. I'm lifting it up as an offering to God. I say, Lord, remember us now through this bread. Remember us now through this wine so that we who gather together around your table are claiming those promises given to us in Jesus Christ. It's, an, it's another way to say, remember, remember the promises you made to us in our baptism. We're claiming that right now for us. God wants to do this because we are his covenant people. We are his people. He, he remembers us through that ritualized meal. Thoughts or questions on that before we move on to the next thing? All right, verse 2. Oh, I'm in the book of Numbers. Here we go. Genesis chapter 8. I'll tell you what, let's just back up to verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually 
At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Let's pause there. So we see on the 17th day of the seventh month, in verse 4, 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. If you do the math, and I, I did some of the math this afternoon getting ready for this. <laughs> it's kind of uh, arduous math. Uh, but if you do the math in, in the Hebrew calendar, here's why it's arduous, because at one point God changes the Hebrew calendar. So you got to keep that change in mind as you go through all these numbers. The 17th day of the seventh month is the day that the Passover happens. I'm sorry, not Passover. Passover happens on the 14th day of the seventh month later in the book of Exodus. The 17th day is the day that they cross the Red Sea. Also on this day, centuries later, this is the day that Christ is risen from the dead. All of these events happen on the 17th day of this month. So we see that the waters subside and the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That rest, there's that idea of, of even the ark is having like a, a Sabbath. It's resting from its work. We see that the, the Israelites are delivered from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army through the waters of the Red Sea. And we also see in the New Testament that this, this would, will become the day that Christ is resurrected. And the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. All right, now let's pause. I, remember, I, I, I want you to think sacramentally. I want you to think baptism. Because Peter already told us in the New Testament that Noah, the whole flood narrative is like, is like Christian baptism. What do you think of when you think of a dove in the Bible? What imagery is called to mind about doves? Think the New Testament. What descended upon Jesus when he was baptized? A dove. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. So it looks like this dove comes down on Jesus. Scripture tells us that's actually the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a dove. <laughs> it means he chose to appear as a dove in that particular moment. So with Jesus' baptism, you got water. You got a dove, you got the Holy Spirit, and all that, right? That should bring us right back to Genesis chapter one, where we see the Holy Spirit brooding over the waters of creation. We've already seen that God sends in verse eight, he sends the spirit, excuse me, chapter eight, verse one, he sends the spirit to blow over the earth and the waters subside. There we have that, that uh, water and the spirit language again. And now Noah takes a literal dove, a real dove, and sends it out over the waters to find out whether or not it's safe for them to leave the ark. This is all intentional on, on, on the part of the author. He wants us to pick up on all of these baptism metaphors. Verse 8, Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. Watch what the dove brings back. 
But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Verse 10. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So the dove, after sends the dove out the first time, nothing. Okay, it's not safe to leave the ark yet. Let's wait a week. Sends the dove out again, and the dove actually comes back with something. The dove comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. It says, oh, this looks promising. Let's wait another week. Sends the dove out, and the dove does not return to him anymore. So what's the deal with this olive leaf? Olives are used throughout Scripture to symbolize different things. In the Mediterranean world, at this time, olives are used for food. Olives are used for lamp oil. They're used for medicine. They're used for anointing oil. Uh, The Israelites would use olive oil to anoint their kings as kings at the coronation ceremonies. They were also, it was also used to anoint the priests of Israel. Olives was, uh, olive oil was also used as a sacrificial oil. Olives or olive oil is symbolic for the anointing of the spirit. Like I said, the Israelites would use this as an anointing oil to anoint their priests and anoint their kings. The idea is when I apply oil to you, it's, it's as if it's symbolically the spirit is coming upon you. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. We still do this in the church today. When I was ordained into the ministry, both, the, both when I was ordained a deacon and later when I was ordained a priest, I was anointed with oil both times. Olive oil. Anointed with olive oil both times. Some countries still maintain this practice for their kings and queens. The Queen of England... Queen Elizabeth, yes, when she was anointed as the queen, she was anointed uh, by the archbishop with olive oil at her coronation ceremony. So there's this idea of the giving of the spirit or the anointing of the spirit with oil. We also see olives and olive oil being used in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus went to pray the night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. After he uh, gives the the Last Supper to his disciples, they all go to the garden and they pray. Gethsemane literally means, from Aramaic, oil press. It's a garden that was likely filled with a bunch of olive trees. It's the oil press. That's where you would go to press the oil. So here we have Jesus Christ, who prays so hard and is so distressed about the coming crucifixion and and, and what he's about to do, that he sweats drops of blood. It's almost like Jesus is being pressed like oil. And what's coming out of him is blood. This kind of gives new meaning to the verse in Isaiah. What is it? Isaiah chapter 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. If we think of Jesus as being the, the picture of an olive, he's crushed for our iniquities, what would come out of him? Oil. It's like he's, he dies, he's pierced, he's crushed, so that he can then send the Holy Spirit to us. 
and anoints us with oil. Every baptism in Christianity, there is, there is uh, oil associated with baptism. Uh, there, so when, when, uh, if, y'all, if, if you remember when, when Tim was baptized, there was this brief moment after the baptism, after the water ritual, where I went up to him and I anointed him on the forehead with oil. And I, I said, uh, receive the, what did I say? <laughs> I want to read it now, but I don't have my prayer book in front of me. I don't want to get it wrong. Something to the effect, I don't have it memorized, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, this, this, this oil is the anointing, basically, is, is, is the chrism of the Holy Spirit on you. I'm going to have to read that later because I feel dumb not having it ready. But anyway, so, so oil is pictured as, as the Holy Spirit. It's symbolized as the Holy Spirit. And so it's no surprise then that we see in James chapter 5 in the New Testament that James encourages Christians to use oil for healing. Thank you, wife. <laughs> Here's what I say. Here's what I say when I anoint with oil. Yeah, Receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. Amen. And then there's this next line that says, You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Amen. Whew! That's some good stuff right there. And that's done with oil. Oil on the forehead while making the sign of the cross. So, like I said, so in James chapter 5, we see that James encourages Christians to come forward and be anointed with oil for, for healing. If any of you is sick, come forward to the elders and receive the anointing of uh, the anointing of oil for your healing. The oil has this healing quality with it as well. And finally, in, in, in Romans chapter 11, Paul picks up on all these metaphors and, and he, he describes Israel as being an olive tree. He says, he says, you're an olive tree, but because of your faithlessness, some of your branches were cut out. And the Gentiles are being grafted into this olive tree. The, the point he's making, though, is to the Gentiles, he says, now, don't you go think that, 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 that you're something special because you're now grafted into this olive tree, Gentiles. Just like the Israelite branches were cut out, you too can be cut out if, you, if you're an unbelieving, faithless person. If you don't you know, continue in the faith to which you have been called, like you can be cut out of this. Be careful. You can be cut out of the covenant. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says this. But the key, the key here is, is the root of all of this is not you. The root of that tree, this Jewish tree where it's the Gentiles are being grafted into, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the root of the olive tree. That's the metaphor that Paul used. And Paul picks up that metaphor from places in the Old Testament like Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. Did you have something? You I was just going to ask where you wrote, is that found? That's Romans chapter 11. Yeah, you can you can read that a little later. Romans chapter eleven. That's Paul's meta. That's a metaphor that Paul uses to talk about Israel and the Gentiles, and and and, and there's even more. There's 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 all these these uses for olives and olive oil and these metaphors for olives and and, and olive oil uh, throughout the Old Testament and into the New. It should be no surprise for us that the very particular branch that this dove brings back with it as its Flying over the waters of the flood is an olive branch. 
That's not accidental. It didn't just grab an olive branch because that's all there was. And so, well, got to grab an olive branch. No, uh, not, it literally did grab an olive branch, right? That's not the writer like imposing that on the text. That really happened. But God caused that to happen for a reason to teach us something, you know, and, and, and even in, in, uh, in, in uh, like Roman times, like Greco-Roman times and in, into today, we have this idea that, that you've probably heard the phrase, uh, I'm going to extend the olive branch to someone, right? And that's a sign of peace. Uh, so that's, it's part of our own world now. Like we have this idea that olives are, are this sign of peace. And certainly that is what's happening. You know, this, there's this, this new world, there's this new saved world, this resurrected world, this regenerated world that Noah and his family now live in. And the first thing that they see as a sign of this regenerated new life is an olive branch. So verse 13, I think is where I am. Yes, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and look and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, "Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh." birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That command has been given before. When was that command given? That was given in Genesis chapter 1. It was given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let's pause. You'll remember last week I made the point that it wasn't just one or two of each animal that Noah brought on the ark. Right? It wasn't just the male and females. He took uh, seven, or seven, seven, probably 14, seven males and seven females of, of some of these clean animals because uh, he was going to make an offering. And here he's making that offering. Verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God receives Noah's sacrifice. He smells it. We were talking about incense earlier, you know. Incense is a good thing to have in worship. God smells this stuff and it, it pleases him. It's a pleasing aroma to him. God, God smells the, the sacrifice of the animal and uh, that pleases him. There is atonement made. There's this uh, atonement language. And God says, I'm not going to do this again. I will not flood the earth again. Next week, when we get to chapter 9, we'll learn more specifically about, about the terms of that. There's going to be a covenant made between God and Noah, which a covenant is basically kind of a religious contract. A covenant made between God and Noah. And the sign of that covenant 
is going to be the rainbow. And a bow, I remind you, is an instrument of warfare. The idea is, is God has, has come in from, from the hunt, so to speak, and he hangs his bow over the mantle. He hangs his bow over the fire, except his mantle is the sky. And his bow is a bow of many colors because he's God and his bow is glorious. So that is God hanging up his bow saying, I am done destroying the earth. And uh, we'll learn more about that next week. That's going to be Genesis chapter 9. So we'll pause there and we'll go ahead and stop. Are there any questions before we end? All right, well, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that... uh, We pray that you would guide us into all truth and righteousness now. We pray that you would guide us this week in all we do, that we would live lives honorable and pleasing to you. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.